Thanks for listening to Pangea. I'm your host, Jacqueline Schiff. On today's episode, a peek behind the curtain of the 99 under 33 list with selection committee co-chairs Josh Marcuse, chairman of the board of Young Professionals in Foreign Policy, and Anna Rold, editor-in-chief of the Global Affairs magazine, Diplomatic Courier. That's coming right up after the melody. Hi, Anna and uh, Josh. Thank you so much for talking to me about the top 99 under 33 list. It's, it's great to talk to you today. Thank you for having us. Good to be here. Great. So let's uh, jump right in. And this is the second year you've done the list, but I'm interested in knowing uh, the story behind how you first got started last year. How did the idea first come up? Well, uh, Jackie, what we um, we at the Diplomatic Courier started around almost the same time that YPFB started, and we had some somewhat a similar um, mission statement. One of our um, ideas was that we were going to provide a platform for the next generation of leadership to publish alongside the establishment of diplomacy and foreign policy. So naturally, we've been um, sort of in partnership with YPFP for a while, doing events and other sorts of initiatives together. But um, it just so happened that we thought from the diplomatic courier's perspective, we needed to do more to lend some more uh, to lend voice to this uh, to these young, to younger people. And we debated for a while what young meant. We really wanted uh, people under 30 because at the time, most of the lists um, in other publications highlighted people under 40. Um, so that's where this idea came from, and, and um, I have to credit uh, Josh with the the branding, the name of the list, and he can tell you about um, how we came to that. But after several phone calls, um, Josh had been thinking about the same exact idea um, at the same time, and it just so happened that everything clicked at the right moment, and we pursued this idea together. And... Um, I'll, I'll let Josh tell you a little bit about how we came to the branding of the name, but we were looking for a mass. We, we didn't want to do um, 30 people only, 30 under 30 or 40 under 40. The reason we, we went with 99 or originally 100 was because we really wanted to create a big group of people to 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 collaborate with each other. Sure, sure. And uh, yeah, because that's definitely something that I think catches a reader's eye. You know, 33, it's not really a round number and, and 99. So, Josh, can you speak to that? Like, why not Why not 35? That's, that's a great question. I, I would say there were really two different ideas that went into Anna's and my decision to frame it this way. One was that we were trying to figure out what it meant to be a young person in foreign policy and what it really meant to be young. And we started to recognize how much that varied from culture to culture mm. and how that was actually not at all an objective measure of anything, but that there was really a lot of cultural differences around what was expected of people at a young age and, and what was considered appropriate. And around the time that we were doing this, I was invited to go to Brussels to speak 
about YPAP's vision for the future of foreign policy. And I was speaking to a transatlantic audience of a lot of Europeans. And it was so interesting to talk to them about how their views of what it meant to be a young leader in foreign policy were so different from the American perspective. And that was really eye-opening for me. So we decided that someone in their early 30s or in their late 20s, or even in some cases in the list in their early 20s, was the right bracket to put on it in order to capture the following story. And the story we wanted to tell was, let's look at some young people at the start of their career who, even though they're not experienced, uh, have done extraordinary things, who have great ideas, who've been able to have a meaningful, measurable impact, even though they're not coming at it with 10 or 20 years of experience, but they have something in them that's been ignited, that's been set on fire, that's pushing them and driving them, that's making them passionate about changing the world. And and we thought that people under the age of 33, even though 33 was a little bit arbitrary, got at the essence of that. And and so that that was why we wanted to look for people sort of right at that break point. And we felt that would be globally inclusive. Sure, uh, yeah. So, and then, and then the second reason why we did it, which I have to admit is a little bit less substantive, was we wanted it to be catchy. We wanted people to get excited about it, and we wanted it to be memorable. Absolutely. And so 99 and 33 are two numbers that are alliterative when you say them, and, you know, they go together because it's, you know, arithmetic that we're used to. And so Anne and I agreed that, you know, we said it out loud, and we thought, you know, we could do 100 under 35. But 99 under 33 just really spoke to us. And, you know, as soon as I said it, I think Anna was like, yep, that's that's what we have to do. And I was like, yes, that's what we have to do. And it was it was set in stone after that. Yeah, it's 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 a little offbeat. So so it's memorable. And and was the intention uh, to make the list an annual thing um, when you did it last year? Did you know that you were going to do a second list this year? Well, um, we didn't think that far. We wanted to have our pilot out. It was uh, a, a demanding project. It required a lot of time. And um, we really didn't, didn't know where it was going to take us. We really did not anticipate um, how um, how much excitement it was going to generate and how much involvement it was going to generate. And um, both uh, YPFP and Diplomatic Courier tend to be a little bit transatlantic in reach. Mm-hmm. But and and what we learned from this list is that um, we 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 got interest from all other uh, uh, countries around the world that we did not expect. So when we had a debrief about how things went, um, we certainly. Um, immediately said okay we have to do this again and here's how we can do things better and and we can we can introduce new exciting uh features and as and the you know if you if you look at the list last year and this year the the core uh, um the the 99 under 33 idea is still the same but we introduced some very exciting new things this year so as to create a, a larger sort of 99 society um Definitely, and and I want to um, get into that a little later in the interview. But something you mentioned, Anna, really caught my ear because you know I know as as a content creator, sometimes you you create these lists and uh, creating a list of 99. Um, you know, kudos to you guys because I imagine that took 
a significant amount of, of research and time and, and even resources. But, you know, you publish these lists. They get some shares and tweets and maybe some conversation, and then that's kind of it. Um, but that wasn't your uh, experience um, with the list last year. Uh, what what sort of what happened after you published the list, and and what was some of the surprising, I guess, connections uh, that that came about? Uh, one one quick thing, and I'll let Josh explain a little bit more. Um, w- one thing we found out that um, having a reception honoring everybody was not enough. People were eager to meet with each other, but beyond that. And what we realize is both YPFP and diplomatic couriers, we, a lot of the, uh, the people on the list decided they wanted to be involved throughout the year. Mm. In fact, we, uh, a lot of the people on the list from last year became contributors to the diplomatic courier. Um, they attended a lot of our events. They stayed in touch with us. We stayed in touch with them. Um, they were privy to a lot of other opportunities. One thing that is unique about this list is we are not regurgitating the same people every year. We're, we're looking for a unique new list. We're looking for the next generation, the next class. And so that allows us to have an exciting new story to talk, to tell every year. Mm-hmm. And, and Josh, tell me a little, you were, uh, you know, before the interview, we were discussing uh, about the international reach that it had. And there was, there was a pretty cool story. Uh, I'm wondering if you could um, share that with us. Sure, absolutely. And this was, this was a really a moving story for me because this, this really was what sold me on the importance of, of this project that Anne and I are doing together because we read a lot of lists. Um, there, you know, Forbes has great lists. Time does a great list. Mm. There are a lot of great lists out there. And so in America, we feel we're sort of inundated with these. Um, and top 10 lists courtesy of David Letterman and whatnot. And so they're valuable, but we see a lot of it. And I didn't realize how unique that was uh, and how different until I met one of the most extraordinary 99ers, um, a gentleman named Santosh Shah. And Santosh comes from a rural village in Nepal. Uh, and, really, and he was on the list last year. Yes, he was on the list last year. And... Santosh is is incredibly bright and motivated and an inspired and inspiring young person who's really struggling to change the face of Nepal, uh, advocating for transparency, advocating for justice, advocating for literacy programs and for youth and doing it in a remarkable way through the media by creating uh, a series of television programs, which he lobbied the government to get permission to actually show on on state television, and so he's he's doing extraordinary work. But you know, no one no one that I had ever met had come across uh, anything that he was doing in Nepal because it was it was very far off our radar screen. And so another ninety nine er, Sarah King, um, who's a friend of mine who works at the State Department, um, came across Santosh on one of her trips through Asia doing uh, outreach to the Muslim world and youth engagement. And so she nominated Santosh and brought him his story to the table. And so when I met him in Washington, D.C. at the reception that the diplomatic courier hosted, he came up to me and he told me that his being included on the list was national news in Nepal <laughs> and that being included on the list was going to change 
his his life and change his career and that people who had ignored him because he was a young person in Nepal and been able to dismiss his message of empowering young people and empowering uh, women, you know, they needed to take him seriously now because he was on the list and it was in the newspapers. And I just couldn't believe it because what, what I believe we were doing was we were putting together a great story um, that people who read The Diplomatic Courier would appreciate and people who participate in YPP would appreciate. But what Santos helped me to see is that there are parts of the world where this is really a national event. And indeed, when, when Santos went back to Nepal, he got off the plane and was greeted by a press conference in the airport. Um, and uh, he continued to be interviewed for months about this and what it meant for him. And he and I continued to keep in touch. And he tells me how this has helped him. And I just think that's incredibly moving and powerful. And so we remember that all the time when we look at this. And that's why we really make an effort to make it an international list that includes a lot of people from around the world. And sure enough, this year, we saw a lot of examples of that. We saw um, the list covered uh, in Lebanon, in Pakistan, uh, in, in South America. News outlets were highlighting uh, people from their countries who were included. And for them... You know, this is really a chance for them to tell their story to a broader audience of people. And, and we hope it helps them be more effective at accomplishing their mission and their goals um, around the world and the countries they come from. And that's probably the most inspiring and motivating thing about Nine Under 33 for me is the chance to tell the story of these incredible people and help them do what they do a little bit better. Sure. Yeah, it sounds like you know there's there's definitely been some some incredible international uh, reach, and and I guess that's in large part um, you know due to as you were saying the types of people you select to be on the list. Uh, so let's let's talk about that selection criteria. How did you choose the people on this year's list, and and you know did it change in any way from last year? Oh, and do you want to say a couple things about how we did it last year, and I can talk a little bit about uh, how we did it this year? Well, sure. We we um, we had a very short time frame last year because the idea happened. At the, the idea and uh, to to do this was only about two months before we had to go to production with our September issue. So we had a shorter a window of opportunity. Um, despite that, I was surprised. I think um, we had about 400. Uh, am I right, Josh? 400 nominations last year. Yeah, um, at, least, at least 400. At least 400, which which I was very surprised about, um, and it, it it was an um, the the criteria were exactly the same as this year. We were looking for individual stories. We're looking for people who um, had a showed promise that they would be a leader in the future. B um, were selected by their peers as uh, someone who had um, already made some sort of a difference in their community or in their field. And, um, so that that particular criteria did not change this year, but we did introduce uh, this the seven leader archetypes, and that helped us organize um, the list in a better uh, and, and give it some shape and definition. 
And it also allowed us to show that uh, foreign policy as a field is very interdisciplinary. And I'll let Josh talk a little bit more about the the archetypes and the selection process, the way it happened this year. But uh, last year, we had a small committee comprised of diplomatic courier um, editors and YPFB. Uh, this year, the selection committee got even bigger because we included leaders from the former 99, um, from last year's 99. And so it was, uh, I think the process took about um, two and a half, three months of voting. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we had a two-month open nomination process. So it was much, we, we had a, a little bit more of a luxury of time this year to um, to go through the selection process. Sure. And so, so Josh, what would you, what would you add to that? Um, and, and tell me a little more about these seven categories that you, that you added this year. Absolutely. So I think that one of the most important uh, changes or innovations that we made to the list was coming up with these seven leader archetypes. And actually, these seven archetypes are, are going to be used, I think, uh, by young professionals in foreign policy for a lot more than just this list, because I think that they're a really powerful and compelling way about looking at the global impacts that young people can have. And so what we did is we all sat down in a room uh, with a whiteboard and, and notepads, and we started having a conversation that went on for hours about how is it that the world is shifting? What are the trends that we see that are really altering the global landscape? And who are the people that are making that happen, that are driving that, and what is it that they do exactly mm-hmm. that is non-traditional foreign policy? What are, what are the verbs that we're using to describe the change in the world that they're making? And so we came up with essentially seven words, seven actions, and these actions became categories. And so the categories that we came up with uh, were, uh, I think, a, a really interesting way of thinking about the future of foreign policy. The first category is there are catalysts. And the catalysts are people who are not typically associated with foreign policy. They're not diplomats. Um, but nevertheless, they have a huge impact on international affairs. And so you're looking at people, for example, who may be in private equity. They may be in the sciences. They could be in the arts. But they're able to have this, this catalytic effect on the foreign policy community by bringing their ideas to the table um, and changing the way people in foreign policy think about those things. The second type are the conveners, people who are able to bring people together in creative ways that address an international issue, Mm -hmm. Uh, people who are are creating groups of people that span different sectors, span international borders, and are able to have, have an impact by their ability to bring these different groups together and get them talking to each other and to have that kind of dialogue that leads to new ideas and changes. And the third type are influencers, people who are able to mobilize people in the foreign policy community with bold new ideas. They're, they're authors, they're journalists, um, they're writing books, they're writing, they're writing stories that people really care about that are touched by them. And so they have enormous influence um, to bring new ideas um, to the forefront of attention, and they're able to change foreign policy by influencing others with those ideas. Uh, my One of my favorite categories we came up with, the fourth category, are innovators. Um, the innovators design new solutions to critical global challenges. They're coming up with um, incredibly powerful software tools that track 
social media and can be used to do geolocation to save people in earthquakes. They're innovating um, new kinds of social ventures that harness the power uh, of the private sector to create microloans that create livelihoods in rural communities. They're coming up with incredible uh, technologies that verify the uh, validity and the legitimacy of drugs so that, pe- so that the medications people are taking in, emer- in emerging markets are actually real drugs they are going to cure them and not make them sicker. And they're doing it with text messaging. Uh, so those are the innovators. Mm-hmm. Um, we have um, the practitioners. This is the more traditional foreign policy uh, leader that we come to expect, foreign service officers, Maybe they're sailors or, or Marines in the military or they work in the intelligence community or uh, they do development assistance. Um, but they're people that are changing foreign policy from the inside by being extraordinary professionals. You know, one of the best examples that comes to mind is we had a young woman who became the director on the national security staff for the president for Yemen. And as you know, this was an incredibly challenging time for Yemen this year, dealing with a lot of very serious security issues. And so she was handling U.S. national security policy towards Yemen, but she was at the extraordinarily young age of 27. And when you think about that responsibility, um, you know, the recommendation that we got from one of the most senior people in the White House, um, who is her boss, went on about, you know, all of the incredibly mature uh, and at the same time innovative uh, skills and approaches that she brought at such a young age. And so the practitioner column uh, in our list is, is for people like her. And then um, you have uh, the risk takers, people who take big risks. They take financial risks. They take uh, they risk their lives in some cases. They risk their safety. Um, they risk uh, their comfort to go do remarkable things um, that influence foreign policy. And last, um, the last archetype are the shapers. Um, and the shapers are able to change public discourse in an aspect of foreign policy and raise awareness of a critical issue. Uh, and, you know, an example of, of a shaper um, is a young woman who has used economic analysis and econometric data analysis on the price um, of child prostitution in order to assess the impact of her work to raise awareness of child sex trafficking. And so what she's done is she's taken the basic laws of supply and demand and saying, if, if we can change the price um, for this, you know, terrible, terrible commodity that in, in the sex trafficking industry, if we can raise the price, then we know we're having an impact. And so she's working with people at MIT to be the first person ever to use this kind of tool, this analytical tool, to look at the impact that, that her nonprofit is having. And she started that nonprofit when she was just 16 years old. Wow. And and, uh, and it's having an extraordinary impact um, around the world to try to end um, the horrors of, of child sex trafficking. So when we thought about who it is that's a 99 under 33, we broke it up into these seven categories. And we think that each of these seven categories tells a really powerful story about the way people of all ages um, are going to be changing foreign policy in the 21st century. Absolutely. And and it's, it's certainly a very, um, the way you've broken it out like that, a very... Um, holistic and encompassing way, I think, of of thinking about who's who's leading in foreign policy is something you sort of hit on, and I think Anna should direct this um, more to you. Is you've described the list as an opportunity to cover an important and underappreciated trend in global politics, and so I think you spoke a little to that, Josh. But but Anna, I'm hoping you can uh, further refine um, what you guys meant by that. 
Well, I'll be happy to. It goes back to the um, official world of diplomacy. What we didn't want to do with the diplomatic courier was to keep saying, keep, keep telling the same story. Um, I, I speak in panels very uh, frequently, and I'm often asked, well, how has the, cha- the face of diplomacy, what is the future of diplomacy now that we have social media, now that we don't need to have face-to-face interactions? And what I always say is that face-to-face diplomacy is not going to change. It's, it's still going to be the most important um, uh, aspect of diplomacy. And the difference between the people in this list and um, and the establishment is that the, the people in this list have figured out multiple different ways to interact with each other. So what we've meant by um, this is an opportunity to talk about an underappreciated trend in global politics is the idea that um, this is not the kind of sexy foreign policy topic of the day. It's not being covered every day the way that you would see in other publications that are more established. For for the millennial generation, I believe another aspect of why this is underappreciated, I happen to believe that the millennial generation is... Um, a little bit misunderstood. There's plenty of articles and polls and, and focus groups and discussions out there discussing um, how the millennials work, how they're uh, transient, how sometimes they're um, they're they they can um, they're not as established. Well, I one of the ideas about this story was to figure out how the millennials uh, contributed to foreign policy in general. And whether they're transient or not, I I don't happen to think that they're transient. I happen to think that they are mobile. Their talent is mobile. And and that was one of the other stories that we wanted to discuss in the Diplomatic Courier is um, what talent mobility does uh, to counter global youth unemployment. So this was um, another important aspect of the story that we wanted to say from the diplomatic courier's perspective is uh, what is this generation that has um, been defined by global youth unemployment and international insecurity? What are they doing to make their mark in the world? And what, we're, what we've seen from the stories is that they're a very entrepreneurial generation. They have started um, nonprofits and they've started um, um, companies and they've started multi, what we consider multinational organizations they, without the capacity of multinationals um, out there. So in that sense, this is why this diverse list was such an interesting um, story to tell from our perspective. Sure. You know, one of the things that, that strikes me as Josh was speaking and as you're speaking is not one of the categories was called, you know, entrepreneur, uh, but it seemed like entrepreneurship is something that could fit in. Uh, across a few different categories. And obviously with the millennial generation, Generation Y, you know, there's so much talk about um, how this is an entrepreneurial generation. So I'm curious what your discussions were like in how you see entrepreneurship fitting in with leadership in foreign policy. Well, a lot of our risk takers and our innovators, um, some of our conveners were um, were people who started their own organizations or, or um, started their own uh, nonprofits and, and companies. 
um, Josh and I come from that unique perspective as well as founders of our of our respective organizations mm-hmm. and um, you know we started our organizations at, in our mid twenties. So the, for for us, it was also and I a wonderful way of meeting peers um, who are also doing or have been doing what we've been doing. Um, so in a sense, this list, the reason it became such um, an interesting project for us is because it it was going to create a society. It was going to create this group of people that could create things together that otherwise wouldn't know each other any other way. Sure. Josh, do you have anything to add to that, uh, just about sort of entrepreneurship fitting in with um, leadership in foreign policy? Absolutely. And this is actually, I think, my favorite subject uh, when it comes to foreign policy. We had entrepreneur as one of the archetypes, uh, one of the phases of revising this construct, and we took it out. And the reason we took it out was that we believe that really almost all 99ers are entrepreneurs. Uh, either they're entrepreneurs in the traditional sense, they've started companies, or they are social entrepreneurs, to use the term that Bill Drayton coined 30 years ago, or they are intrapreneurs, which is to say they are entrepreneurs within larger organizations, um, and they're creating and generating new ideas within the context of a government agency or within the context of a large corporation or a large nonprofit or an international organization because they have the qualities that entrepreneurs have. They're, they're willing to take calculated risks. They want to create new ideas and generate new value. They like to create partnerships and collaborations. They are willing to be competitive um, with one another when they need to be. Uh, and they and they want to see results, and they take a personal sense of ownership over what they can create. And uh, one one of the things we often say is that the 20th century model of foreign policy is about what you can regulate, and the 21st century it's about what you can create. And the 99ers are all creative people; they're all entrepreneurs. Very very interesting. And so for people who are listening to this interview and perhaps you know aspire to claim a spot um, on the on your list one day, can you um, talk through the selection process? You mentioned the selection committee, um, and you mentioned a little about what you look for, and and there was also talk about you know nominations and everything. But for someone who wants to you know one day maybe appear on this list. How can they catch your eye? Well, we have a form, <laughs> so we, That's we always have, a, always a good place to start. You know, it, with the most how it starts. We have an open nomination process. We haven't announced the date yet, but we'll make sure that it's going to be announced around uh, springtime. And uh, and uh, what we we have very specific questions. Um, you can self nominate. Um, during that process, we make sure that um, we send the, the nomination announcement to as many partners and to as many organizations out there. We also advertise it on the Diplomatic Courier and the YPFP, Young Professionals in Foreign Policy websites. And um, that will happen sometime in um, March of 2013, and we'll have about two months of open nomination process. So this is the the very specifics of how we're going, you know, how we did it last year, and, and I'm assuming that not much will change in that process. Um, and it's very transparent in that sense. 
Now, I'll ask my um, partner, Josh, to tell you a little bit more about the nuances. And that means, you know, what do you need to do to be on the list? You need to have started your own organization. Well, not necessarily, but um, I'll, I'll let him explain a little more on that. Sure. Well, the way the way I think about it is that usually uh, it takes one to know one. And so for that reason, the first person that we turn to to pick the next 99er is the last 99er. And so the selection committee this year was made up mostly of people who had been selected in the previous year. And in the coming year, again, the selection committee will be you know, predominantly made up of people who had been on the list in one of the past two years, along with members of the Diplomatic Careers Editorial Board and uh, YPFP's leadership team. And so they'll be the ones making the selections, but they're also going to be the ones making most of the nominations. We asked all of them, the first uh, class of 99ers, if you will, to nominate um, people for the next class. And I think most of them nominated at least one person. And so this year, we're hoping to get at least um, two or 300 nominations from the 198 people who have appeared on the list. And and we take those nominations very, very seriously, um, and we take the voting process very seriously. So the two things I would recommend that you do, in addition to uh, following the detailed instructions that Anna gave, is <laughs> first, and, first and foremost, you need to find a way to change the world. And one of the seven archetypes that I, that I described that are on the website, you need to really make a difference in a way um, that that's passes the passes that test of credibility that we can see the impact that you had. And second, you need to get someone who's in the 99 society to notice that. Um, you need to reach out to them and tell them about what you've accomplished and persuade them that you have the kind of remarkable vision uh, and personal tenacity to make a difference. Uh, and if you can get one of them to nominate you, I promise that Anna and I and the rest of the committee will very carefully consider you to be on the list. Great. Well, that's that's certainly excellent information for anyone who's who's hoping to, you know, use the list to um, advance and I guess gain access to, you know, some of these um, incredible people that you've selected. I'd like to now move more to that sort of sense of community. And um, you've mentioned sort of in passing uh, the different ways that people have collaborated as a result of being part of this elite group. Can you sort of share that, um, you know, how people have worked together as a result of it? And and I'm also curious about what you attribute to the strong sense of community that has come from just appearing on this list. Well, uh, in terms of, in terms of collaboration, I've been really impressed to see what's come out of this. I mean, there is a there was an article that was written uh, by two member 99ers together uh, about complexity and foreign policy, which uh, I w- thought that was exciting. Um, did, ha- did they not know each other before writing this article? They just connected through being on the list. No, I think I think they actually knew each other beforehand, and then they both happened oh, to be nominated. Um, but then we also have examples of people who met um, on the list and have started to, to collaborate together, inviting them um, to speak at one another's conferences, uh, in some cases investing in one another's companies and social businesses. Um, I know of at least um, one organization around global partnerships, uh, partnerships.org, that was launched with uh, support from, from 99ers working together. 
Uh, I think, you know, I, I'm, I've seen a partnership uh, with two people that appeared on the list um, that, that's coming together literally uh, just in the next couple of weeks. Uh, so we see them uh, cooperating with each other and, and collaborating with each other. Uh, and uh, when you walk around the room at the reception uh, and you just sort of pop in from conversation to conversation, you know, no one is talking about the weather in these meetings. They're talking about um, the work that they do uh, for the governments that they uh, serve. They talk about the causes they believe in. They talk about the original research uh, and, and writing that they're doing and the, the blogs that they're launching. They're talking about the companies that they're starting and, and where they're looking for capital and looking for talent. They're, you know, just uh, earlier this week, we saw people posting uh, job announcements for their companies uh, on the private board, looking for people to help them to recruit talent uh, to work for them. So I, I think we see a lot of cooperation between the members, but I hope that we're just scratching the surface. I hope that in the next year, uh, we'll see a lot more of that. And uh, I hope the next time that we interview with you, we'll have a list of the organizations that, and achievements uh, and, and, and changes in the world that came out of this group. Uh, so, so Stay tuned. We think there's probably going to be a lot more cops. I'm absolutely sure that there will be, because it does seem like, you know, there's just um, a strong sense of community behind that. It's interesting. Do you think it's because, you know, people just tend to be like-minded who are achieving these things, you know, relatively young ages? Or what do you attribute the sense of community to? I don't know if Josh or Anna wants to take that, but your call. Well, I'll, I'll take it for a minute. Uh, the, obviously, the reason for that is what, what Josh said earlier. It takes one to know one. It's um, they, These are very accomplished people who, um, when they meet each other, they're immediately looking at any challenge, geographic challenge or perceived challenge as an opportunity. These are inherent people who inherently see challenges as opportunities. So they immediately look at the in the room and they see people they can work with, which is why this list uh, became much more than just a feature story for us. And we did, when we did it again, we decided that we were going to term it as the 99 Society and which is why we have um, different, you know, a, a bunch of new activities planned for the new class, and um, one of them being Summit 99, which uh, young professionals in foreign policy will work um, very closely with us in putting together next year for for this class. And um, the idea around Summit 99 is that we won't have these the traditional panel discussions. What we'll do is we'll put together these 99 leaders um, so, so that they can um, figure out ways to work together. And most of them already want to do that. They've already expressed that they want to do that. So you can think of it as a much more nuanced and um, high-level way of doing networking. But you know exactly who's on the list. And you know exactly what they've accomplished. So you know, um, you, you now have access to 98 or 198 people or 197 people who already have, um, uh, they're thinking, they're, they're already thinking like you in terms of collaboration. That's sure. exactly right. Because and that gets into sort of my next and final question about what's up next, what you're planning, um, for the next year for the 99 under 33. 
we have a few things in uh, in the works, and as I said, Summit 99 will be one of them, and I'll let Josh explain a little bit more. We at the Diplomatic Courier will host the uh, the reception to welcome everybody, bring them all together for the first time, mm-hmm. but we're also inviting the other 99 from last year, um, and we'll also invite, uh, we're partnering with the American Academy of Diplomacy, so there'll be a lot of retired and current uh, diplomats um, to our event. And this is an opportunity for a bigger gathering, a social gathering for everybody to to meet each other. And then uh, down the line, we want to be able to have uh, a virtual place for them to keep continue meeting with each other uh, throughout the years and throughout the year and then later on throughout the years as alumni. And that will be with the launch of a a special website called 99 Under 33. Dot org, And we already have, um, you know, through social media, we've already connected everybody through Facebook and, and Twitter and LinkedIn. Um, and then Summit 99 will be sort of the culmination of, um, of, of this experience. So it, it starts with the feature, which we launched this week, and then it culminates with the 99, uh, the Summit 99 and Around the same time, we'll be preparing for the next class or the next year's list. So I'll let Josh talk a little bit more about uh, Summit 99 since that was his idea. Well, I think Anna really said it said it perfectly. Uh, but the only thing that I would add to that is, again, the sense that there are so many conferences in Washington. There are so many conventions. There are lots of people uh, meeting. And the purpose of the Summit 99 is is to be something a little bit different where The 99ers are going to drive the agenda. In a lot of cases, they're going to be the featured speakers. They're going to be talking about the issues that they are most passionate about, the issues that they are most expert in, uh, and they're going to be planning what they want to do together, and they're going to be helping us define what they want the 99 society to be because we're really developing and designing these ideas as we're implementing them mm-hmm. and no one knows what uh, what these young leaders want better than they do and so i think we're going to spend a lot of time uh, on the sidelines of summit 99 asking them what do you most want what do you most need what are the problems that you're experiencing and how can we at the diplomatic courage and professionals in foreign policy uh, help you solve those problems uh, which are which are really not just the problems they're experiencing in their jobs. It's really the problems that we as a generation are experiencing around the world. And so, you know, we hope that belonging to the 99 Society is going to add value for these leaders. But ultimately, I think what motivates Anna, what motivates me is our belief that we can be the kind of conveners that we put on the list by bringing these people together and we can help them be more effective at accomplishing their goals because their goals are the most important things that are going on in the world right now. And uh, if we can, if we can tell their story and, and make it a little easier for them, you know, that's a contribution that, that each, uh, Anna and I each can make and, and that we really believe in. Excellent. Well, I think there's probably no better place to end. Um, it was so great to talk to you both and hear more information about this, uh, you know, interesting initiative and all the things that you have planned. So thank you. Thank Thank you. you.